Today on Blue 58, the Packers took care of business, beat the Bears, and earned themselves a spot in the playoffs. Take a moment and savor this one before we move on to what's next. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Excited to be with you here for another episode. Savor it. Savor this one. I said it in the intro, I'm saying it again, and it's going to be the focus on most of what we talk about here. Because the reality is, things like this are rare. Football in general is a very rare thing. One of the gambling sites has made a whole ad campaign about that this year. Even if it's a little bit distasteful from a gambling perspective, the idea of that whole campaign being that you should bet on absolutely everything you can because, well, you're just not going to have that many opportunities to gamble. The overall point is true. Football is rare. Just in general. Every season is unique. Some are uniquely bad, and some, like this one, are uniquely good. But even in a bad season, you're only guaranteed a few games. 17, in the grand scheme of things, is not that many. 17 days out of 365, you get to watch your Green Bay Packers play football. We get an 18th game now, and it's something that should be savored. But what gets us to that 18th game? It's really the players. Special players and special teams really only come along every so often. And I think sometimes we miss some of those guys that are, I don't want to say like less than Hall of Fame or something along those lines. I'm not sure exactly how I would even define them. But I think, let me kind of define it by saying what they're not. I think a lot of times we're just looking for that next Super Bowl team. And we evaluate guys in the context of whether or not they are good enough to basically win the Super Bowl by themselves sometimes. Are they Hall of Fame caliber players? Are they Pro Bowl caliber players? All Pro caliber players? Are they going to be stars? Are they going to be the guys that we remember as being crucial to a Super Bowl run? If not, they kind of go by the boards. And sometimes you don't know how special a guy is going to be for a while, or how special a team is, or how special a portion of a season is going to be. But I think what's great about this one, what's great about this season is that with no expectations for what this season quote-unquote should be, everything feels a little bit more special. You've got Jordan Love paying off years of waiting by playing a great month of football and capping it all off with what could have been his best game of the season. You've got Aaron Jones putting up 100 yards on the ground for the third straight game, which as far as I can tell, is the first time he's done that in his career. And doing it in a game where they had really no other healthy running backs. A.J. Dillon was out for this one. Uh, Emmanuel Wilson was back but didn't play. It was basically just Aaron Jones. He was the only running back to take a carry in this one. You've got big performances from Jaden Reed and Bo Melton. You've got five different Packers players with a sack. All sorts of special stuff that leads up to a pretty special and unique moment as we get to see the Packers go to the playoffs. It's true that going to the playoff means maybe a little bit less than it used to. Seven teams in a conference making the playoffs does water it down a little bit. But it shouldn't water down this accomplishment for the Packers, who were left for dead by 
practically everyone, me included, half a season ago. They're sitting there at two and five after seven games, 10 to go. They pretty much had to thread the needle to get there. And by golly, they did it. Seven and three the rest of the way. And now they're in the playoffs. In lieu of watering this down to three good things and three bad things, I want to talk about some of the big performers' roles in how we got to this point. Because I think all of this is going to add up to something important. And we'll get there after we talk through some of the principles here. The first guy I think we need to talk about is Brian Gutekunst, who by all impressions here has threaded the ultimate needle. I have faced some mild pushback from at least one listener of this show, maybe fairly, maybe not. Um, Reasonable people can disagree, but I think it's fair to say that I've had pretty high standards for Jordan Love since the day he was drafted. And I think that's because you need to have high standards for the most important position on the team. A quarterback will make or break not just a team's success, but entire careers, a general manager's career, a head coach's career. And if you hit on a pick like that, it can make all of those jobs easier or (laughs) can give you disproportionate amounts of credit for the rest of your football life, for as long as it matters. But to do that, you have to play at a high level. My standard for quarterback play has always been whether or not a guy is capable of playing at an MVP level because I feel like that's what you need to win a Super Bowl. You need a guy who is capable of playing for at least a month while you're in the playoffs, basically, at an MVP caliber level because that's what it takes to win in the playoffs. The idea that you're going to build a defense that's strong enough to carry you for an entire month of NFL football in the playoffs is I think it's beyond ludicrous at this point. It just doesn't really happen anymore. The last example I think you can really point to is the Broncos back in, what was it, 2015? Whatever Peyton Manning's last season in the NFL was, the defense really carried them there. And we're going on a decade close to since that. And they're the exception, really, that proves the rule in all of you know the 21st century, really. It comes down to elite quarterback play more often than not. That's the e- Put it this way, that's the easiest way to contend for a Super Bowl. You either have a quarterback who is regularly at that level or you have one who's capable of playing at that level. And if you don't think a guy can play at that level, you shouldn't draft him in the first round or really any round if you're considering him as your, your long-term starting quarterback because that's really the threshold that you should be shooting for. And Brian Gutekunst appears to have threaded that very, very small needle in Jordan Love. And not just in Jordan Love, but in the people he's put around Jordan Love. You know, to say nothing of how Love has played over the last, well, over the the course of this season, and over the second half of the season in particular, and we will in a second, just look at the people that Gutekunst has put around him. Even if you wanted to call Christian Watson and Romeo Dobbs complete misses right now, which I think would be pretty ungenerous because they still have things they can bring to this offense, when he's healthy, Christian Watson has a level of speed that no one else on this team can match. And Romeo Dobbs, when he's playing the right role, is a useful player in this offseason or in this offense, excuse me. 
But beyond those guys, you've got Jaden Reed, a hit in the draft. Luke Musgrave, a hit in the draft. Tucker Craft, a hit in the draft. Duntavian Wicks, a hit in the draft. Bo Melton, a waiver wire find. It just, the level of talent that Brian Gutekunst has put around Jordan Love has enabled this run, and it's it's made it possible for the Packers to get where they are today. The long-term stuff on Love is still a question mark. Totally fair. But he at least looks like a guy who can be a starting quarterback in the NFL for a long time. And the contract stuff, I think, is basically solved at that point. The question on quarterbacks in the NFL is, do I have one or do I not? Right? Either you have a guy that you believe can be your long-term starter, you have a guy you think can reach that level that's necessary to get you to the Super Bowl, or you don't. As of right now, the Packers, I think, are firmly in the former category. They have a guy that can play at that level. So you're just going to pay whatever it costs. There is no other discussion beyond that. You're just going to pay what it takes to keep him. Are you going to reset the market? Probably not, but you're going to give him starting quarterback money, and it's going to be in the neighborhood of $40 million per year for five-ish years or so. We're looking at a $200 million contract or so. But that doesn't matter. Don't get hung up on the details of the contract. It's just going to be whether or not he continues to play like a, a quarterback who can play to that level. And as well as he's played over the last half of the season, there shouldn't be, I, I think, much doubt about that. You're at least willing to roll the dice that he can get back to that level because, shoot, I mean, you're in the playoffs now. Maybe they don't go anywhere this year, but if you if you get back to the playoffs with a slightly better defense a year from now or two years from now, Jordan Love he show, has shown that he is capable of at playing at a level that can win you football games by being in that in that high-end quarterback category. So Gutekunst has done it, it seems. They've threaded the needle. They've got us there. Jordan Love is going to be the answer at quarterback for a while. You've got Matt LaFleur as well. I think looking back, it would have been easy to let the season slip away, or even not maybe not just slip away, maybe just punt on the situation. Say, yep, we gave it a shot, two and five, you know, we were hoping to be a little bit further along by now, but this is where we are, and just the odds of us making the playoffs are not very good, so we're going to get some young guys reps. We're going to look at some people over the course of the, the remainder of the season. We're going to play it like it's preseason. Who wants a job for 2024? They could have done that, and it would have been fine. It would have even been, you know, as we were talking about at the time, say Matt LaFleur has a losing season this year, 2023, and he gets fired if the Packers do something really crazy, it would have been easy for him to just say, shoot, yeah, maybe I get fired. I can get another job. It would have been easy to do that. They were looking at the easy part of the schedule being over at 2-5. and That was supposed to be the easy part. They were supposed to be able to get wins against the Falcons, against the Broncos, against the Raiders, and they dropped those three games. Then coming up, you've got a five-game stretch of the Rams, the Steelers, the Chargers, the Lions, the Chiefs. Even at, if at 2-5 and five, you felt pretty good about the Rams without Stafford and the Steelers just in general, the Chargers, Lions, and Chiefs, man, that's, just, that's a tough stretch. The Chargers can put up points with anybody. The Lions had already beaten the Packers pretty handily at that point, and the Chiefs are the Chiefs. You can never really bet against Patrick Mahomes, especially with the Packers going on the road. And even now... I sit here and I wonder, wow, 
like where the Packers really, <laughs> really were two and five, and they looked at the rest of the schedule and said, "All right, I guess we just got to get to work. Uh, we we got to sit there and we got to do what we can." And they did it. And you know, even if you know, correcting myself here, even if the Chiefs game wasn't as challenging as it could have been, playing the Chiefs at Lambeau Field and not at Arrowhead, that's still the that was the toughest one out of those three really tough looking games. And they took care of business against the Chiefs and against the Lions and against the Chargers. A couple bumps in a row in the road there, sure, against the Giants and and Buccaneers, but they righted the ship and got into the playoffs, and Matt LaFleur is a big reason why. But then you've got Jordan Love. He is the threading of the needle. He is everything they could have hoped for to this point. As a first-year starter, what are you really hoping for? We characterized it last summer as as basically vibes. You're looking for vibes from Jordan Love. You want to feel good about Jordan Love coming out of this season. I think we are way beyond feeling good at this point. Feeling great is probably a lot more like it, but he's everything it feels like you could hope for from just a starter, not a first-year starter, but just a starter. Steady emotionally, putting up big numbers on the field, playing to his teammates' strengths, coming up big in the biggest portions of the year. Just the last month, nine touchdowns, zero interceptions. The Packers take care of business to get things done and get into the playoffs in Love's first year as a starter. Even in the games the Packers lost down the stretch, the Steelers, the Giants, the Buccaneers, I think you can only really point to Love being the problem in one of those three. Yeah, he had a stinker against the Giants, but you know who has bad games? Literally every NFL player. It's going to happen from time to time. It happened in that one to Jordan Love. It just happened to have it happen in a high-level game on national television against a, an opponent the Packers probably should have beaten. Yep, it happened. But he rallied, the Packers rallied, and now they are in the playoffs with their first-year starter in Jordan Love. Those are the big three guys. That is the core. And I think the really exciting thing is that the core is just getting started. Brian Gutekunst has a bunch of draft capital for next year. Matt LaFleur has a young roster that he gets to build exactly how he wants to build it. And Jordan Love should only get better the more he gets to play as the Packers starter. Now, I can't help but point out there is one small, small dark side to this. And I say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But I would say... We are in the save Joe Barry's job endgame situation here. Now, it's true he played badly. His defense played badly against the Carolina Panthers. That is that is very true. But Matt LaFleur has been pretty steadfast in his support for Barry ever since the, the conversation started getting pretty loud about what the Packers needed to do with their defensive coordinator. And what has Joe Barry's defense done over the past two weeks? They've allowed a grand total of 19 points to the Vikings and Bears. And let's just say dialing it back to 2021, in the Packers' last three elimination games, this week against the Bears, last week 18, last year against the Lions, and the loss to the 49ers in the 2021 playoffs, 
Joe Barry's defenses have allowed a grand total of 42 points. That's 14 per game in elimination games. If you rewind it to our conversation we were having about the the tear it down conversation, if Joe Barry's walking into Mar- uh, Mark Murphy's office or Matt Lafleur's office or Joe Barry's o- or or Brian Gutekunst's office or whoever, I think Joe Barry has some data points if he wants to sit down and say, "Look, you know when the rubber meets the road, I've held up my end of the bargain. You wanted good defense in elimination games, buddy." 14 points per game, the last three times it's been win or go home, that's the average. We've gone home two of those three times. Whose fault is that? Matt? Now, I don't think it really goes down that way. I think that there are a lot of other things that you can point to with Barry's defense. A lot of unrest internally, it seems. A lot of guys being mismanaged or misused or whatever. But, If the scoreboard is the ultimate measure there, Joe Barry's defenses have not allowed a lot of points when it's mattered the most. That is an indisputable fact. You can put a lot more context to that fact, but the scoreboard says a lot for supporting Joe Barry. I just want to point that out because, hey, if we're going to end up having a conversation about defensive coordinator this offseason... I think Joe Barry is going to be leaning on Matt LaFleur a little bit, saying, look what I got you. What does it all mean, though? And where do we go from here? It means the Packers are in the playoffs, most importantly. More on that in a second as to exactly where they're going to be going in the playoffs. But I think when you look at the bigger picture about what this means, I think it means the rebuild is officially ahead of schedule. I think we've skipped straight from 2008 Packers to maybe the 2009 Packers because the pieces seem to be in place on the offense. You don't stand to lose much on offense or defense in the offseason. Aaron Jones, probably the major question mark there. Preston Smith, perhaps in the same category. But most of your principles are in place for at least another year. And the defense presumably can and will get better with more talent. And look, if you just look at it from that perspective, even if they don't add a new coordinator, and they should, please don't mistake what I'm saying in the previous segment as, as support for Joe Barry keeping his job. Uh, I just worry about a narrative building in which he could keep his job. However, if there that aside, if there was ever a time that you could just spend a whole bunch of resources on defense, this is it. And that's always been the joke, right? That the Packers just spend and spend and spend on defense and don't get any results. But that's what the Packers are set up to do next spring. Any spending you want to do in free agency should probably be on defense. I suggested getting a safety if they could. But they've got the opportunity to truly just draft the best player available on defense and really just add a piece that can help them elevate this group as it continues to try to get better. In any case, it seems fair to say that the rebuild is ahead of schedule. What happens next then? The Packers are off to Dallas. When, as of this taping, we don't know yet. I suppose that's going to uh, come out here in like any minute now. I'm not watching the wires to see exactly what drops though. It doesn't matter. I don't care because the Packers are not going to be favored. And that doesn't, that doesn't bother me at all. There is no downside for the Packers here. They were not quote unquote supposed to be here. And even, even though they are here, they're just the seventh seed. They're not supposed to beat the two seed on the road in Dallas. Anything can happen though. If you're in the game, you've got a puncher's chance, and 
with the Packers offense playing the way they are, shoot, anything can happen. That's a discussion for another day, though. Let's focus on the right now and talk a little bit about the Packers rookie. Lucas Van Ness caps off his 2023 regular season with a sack. He finishes with four on the year and three in the Packers' final six games. That pressure rate has been going up and up and up over the past month month plus of the season. Luke Musgrave finishes with one catch for 11 yards in his first game back from uh, his lacerated kidney. Timely, timely catch, though. Uh, he helped dig the Packers out of a hole on their final drive of the game. So Aaron Jones gets tackled for a loss on the la- on the first play of the Packers' last drive. Luke Musgrave comes back with an 11-yard catch on second and 13, setting the Packers up for third and short. I just was a timely, timely play for him. And I wonder how many snaps he ended up, ended up having. I would suspect that Ben Sims probably probably outsnapped him, but that is that's fine. I don't think the expectations were super high for Musgrave coming back here in his uh, in his second game or in his in his first game back from his his lacerated kidney. Uh, Jaden Reed loved what we saw from him today. We've seen him as a volume guy today. It was just big play. Jaden Reed four catches, 112 yards. A shame that he couldn't get a touchdown, but he supplied plenty of big plays throughout the evening. Tucker Craft three catches, 31 yards. Another rugged performance from him. He didn't run out of bounds that one time. Cost the Packers some time, but uh, that is a rookie mistake, one from which you would hope that he would learn. Colby Wooden, just one tackle on the day, and Sean Clifford caps things off with a DNP. Good work for Sean. That's exactly where we want you uh, for this for this game in particular. Uh, just wanted Jordan Love going the distance and carrying the Packers. Dontavian Wicks, six catches, 61 yards, and two touchdowns. Boy, doing some statistical research after this one. The list of Packers rookies with six catches, 60 yards, and two touchdowns in a single game is pretty rare. In fact, it happens so rarely in Packers history that we haven't seen it in an entire week. Jaden Reed did it last week. Six catches, 89 yards, and two touchdowns for him last week. But prior to that, it's only happened four other times in Packers history. Jerry Ellis did it, Billy Houghton did it twice, and Carl Elliott also did it all the way back in 1951. Other than that, other than Jaden Reed doing it last week, it's been more than 40 years since the last one we saw, and it was almost 30 years prior to that one. The, the previous two, Houghton's came in 1952 and Elliott's came in 1951. So Wicks, uh, along with Reed, in pretty rare company. Carl Brooks, two tackles and a sack in this one. A sack, a thing of beauty, just whips the left guard one-on-one. A nice, nice rookie season for Carl Brooks. Uh, not so much for Anders Carlson. He had a bad miss on the Packers' first drive, but righted the ship. Glad it didn't end up mattering. Both kickers are putting some bad balls up in the air in this one. Uh, the wind at Lambeau Field traditionally uh, pretty rough. It looked to be rough again in this one. Carrington Valentine, three solo tackles and a pass defense in this one. It goes down in the books as a pass defense. Uh, if you watched the, watched the game, you saw that the play was actually a pass that Justin Fields nearly threw directly to Carrington Valentine. Proving the old adage again, correct, that uh, defensive backs are just wide receivers who couldn't catch. It's tough, but it's generally fairly accurate. If you could catch better than that, you'd be playing on offense with speed like that. Anthony Johnson, he was active today, no stats. In the undrafted free agent rookie category, we've got four players again today. Three catches for nine yards for Malik Heath. Felt like he had more yards than that, but really just the nine did pick up one key first down, though. Emmanuel Wilson was active but did not play. Again, Aaron Jones, the only running back to take a carry today. Brenton Cox inactive. 
uh, ending his quasi redshirt rookie season. And then Ben Sims was active but recorded no stats. I would suspect, though, that he outsnapped Luke Musgrave pretty handily, just given that it was Musgrave's first game back from injury. Let's clear out the notebook with some cheese curds for the road here. Uh, random thoughts and observations just to, about a little bit of everything. Uh, uniforms. This game's about as good looking as it gets. Packers and Bears, probably their best pairing of the season. I wish we could get the Bears to wear their white pants, which I don't think they've done since 2009. Still, the green and the gold versus the blue, the navy and the orange. It's classic. It's classic for a reason. And this game fulfilled my wish for every Packers-Bears rivalry, um, or pairing, I guess, in a given season. Ideally, I always like it if the Packers play the Bears once in just an absolutely gorgeous, like usually unseasonably warm September or October day, and then they need one game that's in a super cold time of the year. So ideally, that would be under some kind of snow or, or really frigid temperatures. Uh, makes the grass like more gray than green, something like that. Didn't quite get all of that in that match, this matchup tonight, but close enough. January football a game that matters to both teams quite a bit. You can't really hope for much more, and it was a great-looking game. I also enjoyed how chippy this game looked and felt. Really felt like a rivalry game. It felt like the records didn't matter, and that's really what you hope for against really all your divisional opponents, and the Packers and, and the Bears in particular. is great when you see that happen. Uh, I, speaking of chippier moments, I wanted to take a second and talk about the, the Justin Fields hit. So in the Bears' last drive, Justin Fields scrambles, he slides, and he gets hit pretty hard by Jonathan Owens, who looked like he turned, and he actually hits Fields with his back. He didn't make contact with Fields' head, but Fields' head did end up slamming into the ground. I thought it looked like a situation where Fields should have been evaluated a little bit more extensively for a concussion. He did come out of the game for one play, um, but I was also surprised to see that play not flagged. Uh, it seems like if that's the sort of play that you, you want to avoid, that's the sort of thing you should be flagging for um, just like any any borderline sort of situation. You really should be cracking down on it. Uh, but that, that wasn't what happened. And looking actually at the rule book, I think that is the correct call, as much as it surprises me that they didn't flag it. Just to read it from the rule book here, this is what it says. Quote, when a runner slides feet or head first or simulates sliding, the ball is dead the instant he touches the ground with anything other than his hands or his feet or begins to simulate touching the ground. Defenders are required to treat a sliding runner as they would a runner who is down by contact. And then here is the key portion. A defender must pull up when a runner begins a feet first slide. This does not mean... That all contact by a defender is illegal. If a defender has already committed himself and the contact is unavoidable, it is not a foul unless the defender makes forcible contact into the head or neck area of the runner with the helmet, shoulder, or forearm, or commits some other act that is unnecessary roughness, end quote. So pretty clearly the ruling on the field there is that Owens didn't make forcible contact into the head or neck area of Justin Fields with his helmet, shoulder, or forearm. And looking at the video, it seems like that was that was the right call there. Uh, CBS production note on this one. Big miss by the production team. So we've talked about how they like to localize their music or use, you know, thematically appropriate music in their broadcast. The, the CBS team 
use jump around after the Packers scored in the second quarter, which obviously, if you know anything about football in the state of Wisconsin, is a huge miss. We play jump around between the third and fourth quarter, not in the second quarter, not thematically appropriate to play it in the second quarter of a Packers game. Just does, just does not work there. Kenny Clark picked up a sack today, seven and a half now on the year. That is a career high. This is something that I think we can credit Joe Barry for. Even if the stunts do leave Packers, uh, the Packers vulnerable to the run a lot of the times, they have helped the defensive line get pressure on the quarterback, and Kenny Clark has benefited from that, picking up seven and a half sacks on the year. Speaking of great stories of this year, Bo Melton might be the best story on the Packers this year. Five catches, 62 yards on the day today. He ends up being the ninth pass catcher of the year for the Packers to break 200 yards this season. That is pretty spectacular. Speaking of spectacular, the Packers did not have a third and long until the final drive of the game. That is, for our charting purposes, a third and seven yards to go or more on third down. Tucker Craft ended up converting that, and that ended up being the last meaningful conversion the Packers needed to uh, to really seal the game. Aaron Jones salted it away there, picking up another first down, but converting that third and long, the last and only third and long the Packers faced in this game was huge. Speaking of that last drive, 6.08 off the clock, up eight, starting from your own five, just stomping the Bears into the turf, bleeding out that last six minutes of game clock, Big plays by Luke Musgrave, Jordan or Jaden Reed, and Tucker Craft on that last drive. They only lost yardage on one play. The first play of the drive after that, just constantly putting up yards, bleeding the clock, and ending the game and the Chicago Bears season. A thing of beauty. Finally, I'll leave you with this. As the Packers prepare to play the Dallas Cowboys in the playoffs next week. Des Bryant did not catch it. So I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I'd appreciate it even more if you'd take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. It's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation that you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.